the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back and happy April 1st, 2021. Good Friday is tomorrow, and that obviously concentrates the minds of Christians around the world. It also had me thinking about a quote from a famous political scientist, Clinton Rossiter, regarding Abraham Lincoln. He called him the Christ martyr of America's democratic passion play. The Christ martyr of America's democratic passion play. This is especially because Lincoln was shot on Good Friday and died on Easter weekend. And it brought me back to this time of year 32 years ago. That's the day I first entered the door of conservatism. That's when I first started to become a conservative, and I can mark it to this day. I was a committed lefty in those days, in early college, and when people asked me to describe my journey, how I went from left to right, liberalism to conservatism, I'm not sure it's that unique of a story, but I'm happy to do it. My biggest worry these days is it may not be replicable for others, at least not in the way I did it. So we're going to have to find other ways. That's a worry, anyway. I'm not exactly sure when I first realized it was seriously time to question the left, As some of you know, that's where I grew up or what I grew up in, leftism. I was even a member of the Youth Socialist Alliance and went off to college thinking I would bolster my left-wing bona fides and help change the world. I was committed to helping the poor. I believed in keeping sacrosanct the Bill of Rights. I loathed racism. I was a big believer in human rights. I thought welfare should be expanded to help the poor. I thought drugs should probably be legalized thought our military buildup was a bad idea and came at the cost of helping the poor, especially minorities. And I thought tax reform should mean taxing the wealthier more. I think my first questioning of the left I associated with was when I entered a socialist bookstore one day in Tempe, and the first book I saw prominently displayed was titled The Zionist Lie, or something close to that. I leafed through it, and I saw the whole book was itself a lie, an anti-Israel screed that swallowed whole the PLO line that Israel should not exist and that it did exist at the expense of Palestinian human and civil rights. But I had been to Israel several times by then and studied that part of the world. I knew what terrorism was, having studied that as well, as it always fascinated me. And I knew that if human rights were a concern in the Middle East, Israel was the answer, not the problem. That there was no country in the world, and there still isn't, that grants minorities, especially Arabs, more civil and human rights than any other in the Middle East, or perhaps the world outside of America and maybe a few countries in Europe. The more I looked into it, the more uneasy I became with my socialist credentials as I realized the entirety of the PLO, and particularly Yasser Arafat, and every single branch of the PLO, and most other terrorist organizations I could identify 
affiliated with socialism and put themselves in league with self-declared socialist countries. I suppose the second thing that got me was a jarring incident that had me seriously and for the first time wondering about how to go about ending racism. I was a freshman in college and took an upper-class psychology course. On my first paper, I received a B-. minus. I had a friend, a senior. He got an A-, minus, and I asked if I could read his paper. It was one of the worst things I ever read, not necessarily in its conclusions. I could hardly get to those. It was close to illiterate, full of grammatical and spelling errors, just chalk full of them. Had I turned in a piece of writing like that in the fifth grade, I'd have gotten an F. I went to meet my teacher to discuss all this, my professor. She said something very close to this. Your paper was a good start, but this is an upper-level course, and you're just not there yet, and you should have integrated X, Y, and Z thoughts. I asked about my friend getting an A-, minus, who didn't integrate those thoughts and turned in a piece of work a fifth grader would be ashamed of. And she said, well, I know his background, where he came from. I've had him in my classes before, and he has had just so much growth, and you have to understand his background. What was his background was question one for me. Hispanic American, South Central Los Angeles. That's what she told me. It was something I never thought of. He was just my friend. The second thing I thought, how come the president, the professor didn't give a damn about my background? What did she know of it? I don't have a great word for it, but my friend and I were each judged by our race or ethnicity. I don't have a good phrase for it, but Shelby Steele, some years later, would write exactly what this was, as would George W. Bush. Steele's line about race-based judgments and education leading to what was generally known as affirmative action, he called the permanent stigma of questionable competence. Bush's line was the soft bigotry of low expectations. But I knew then, before either of these phrases were known to me, this was all just plain wrong. I had grown up knowing well the then-famous Bakke case, and my family was very committed to civil rights, teaching me a ton about Martin Luther King Jr. Almost didn't graduate high school because I almost got kicked out of high school for trying to celebrate his birthday. The Bakke case cited the language I loved and that Americans, all Americans, should love. Quote, distinctions between citizens solely because of their ancestry are by their very nature odious to a free people especially a people dedicated to the notion of equality. I got a quick lesson on what Bakke went through, and I got a quick lesson on soft bigotry, didn't I? Judgments by skin color, permanent stigmas. I became the editor of my college's newspaper. It's actually five colleges. It was in Claremont, California, where the five colleges share some departments, libraries, and a weekly newspaper, among other things. And there was a famous conservative professor there, I thought he was a right-wing nut. That's what I had been told to believe. He had written some odious op-eds, I had thought, and he was to deliver a major speech that was being promoted. It was titled, The Reichstag is Still Burning. It was Good Friday, 1989. His speech was a career-spanning discourse on the problems in higher education. I decided I'd go and cover it and see what this idiot was all about. I, know only, I knew only a little about him, namely that his expertise was supposedly Aristotle and that he had written Barry Goldwater's famous 1964 speech with the lines, Extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. I went to the auditorium and 
I recall another professor I didn't know well at the time named Charles Kessler introducing him. I'll never forget Kessler's last line in his introduction of Harry Jaffa. He said, It is odd that we do this here today on the anniversary of the shooting of Harry Jaffa's favorite political figure, Abraham Lincoln. The difference between Jaffa and Lincoln, though, is that Harry would have shot back. That's always stuck with me. I didn't know Jaffa was a Lincoln lover, much less scholar, but Jaffa approached the microphone and said, Can everybody hear me? At which point, about 25 students stood up with signs that read, Silence equals death, and they walked out quietly as a form of protest. Harry Jaffa then proceeded with his talk, and I wrote an editorial on all of this, saying, quote, while Harry Jaffa's views are abominable, the protesters should have heard him out and confronted him with questions. If he is so wrong, and he is, they should have showed the world how and why, close quote. The day that printed, I got a call from Dr. Jaffa. He said, so you think my views are abominable? How about you debate me? I laughed and said, sir, I'm a snot-nosed little sophomore. You're a world-renowned intellect. I don't think I'm going to be debating you. He said, well, how about a cup of coffee then? How could I turn that down? So we met for coffee and talked and talked and talked and talked, probably for three hours. I took a class of his. I visited him in his office, often to challenge him. And he walked me through a tour of conservative thought I'd never been exposed to, starting, I think, with Commentary Magazine and, of course, his essays. He gave me his essays on every question I had and spent hours with me discussing them. Long and short, he took my hand. I grabbed it and never let go. Long and short, I'd never even been exposed to conservative intellectualism. I didn't know it existed. And what did I learn along the way? In short, to use a quote I always loved from Dennis Teddy, a scholar in Washington, D.C., Walter Burns, another great professor of Leo Strauss's like Jaffa, Walter Burns taught me a professor could love America. Harry Jaffa taught me why. I learned all about how our founding was a beautiful and unique thing. I learned that if I cared about the poor, two things mattered, family and education. I learned that if I cared about the poor, the current welfare system, which endowed fatherlessness, was about the worst thing to do to and for the poor. I learned that school choice and excellence in education was not to be found in the current education system, which had no accountability, but cost ever greater amounts to produce ever lesser quality. I learned that if I cared about equality and racism, our Declaration of Independence, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, and Martin Luther King showed the way that to get beyond race, you have to get beyond race. That segregation is a badge of slavery and integration is the way out and that socialists have re-embraced the former while we, the latter, is something else I came to learn. I learned that if I care about things like the Bill of Rights, minority rights, freedom of association and thought, places like the Soviet Union were the true repressors and oppressors in that day, in those days, and that I had been reading propaganda and not listening to the dissidents, that just because something says pravda, truth, it doesn't mean it is. I learned that if I cared about maintaining this, the last best hope of Earth, the military was the beginning of saving it, not the problem, but a critical necessity. And those who loathed it were in league with those who loathed liberty and equality and all I held dear. I learned, in short, an awful lot. 
So my worry, they don't make professors like Harry Jaffa anymore, world-class scholars, never mind professors who take that kind of one-on-one time with students. So as you know, I've proposed something else for our evangelization. It's borrowed from the ex-slavery movement, each one teach one. It's actually a beautiful sentiment, born of a terrible past. Wikipedia defines it well, as I understood it and long have. The phrase originated when African Americans were denied education, including learning to read. Many, if not most, enslaved people were kept in a state of ignorance about anything beyond their immediate circumstances, which were under control of owners, the lawmakers, and authorities. When an enslaved person learned or was taught to read, it became their duty to teach someone else, spawning the phrase, each one, teach one. That's where we are ideologically today, with the left denying our ability to educate, to speak, to teach, to debate. So we have to do it ourselves, individually, especially those of us who crossed ideological Rubicons and let the ideological reservations and plantations of the left in which we used to live be our guiding light and be useful in how we talk to others about making that same journey as we try to show them the way out. And I suggest we start on the issue of race. It is the dominant issue of our time. It is the issue the left thinks can be used against us. And it is fraught with hypocrisy and idiocy and, ironically enough, actual racism. You still... I. You see, I still think Martin Luther King was right, as I think Frederick Douglass was, and as I think Benjamin Curtis was in his great dissent in the Dred Scott decision, where he said this, to allege that the founders intended to say that the creator of all men had endowed the white race exclusively with the great natural rights, which the Declaration of Independence asserts, is a reproach of inconsistency. That whole notion, he said, was a violation of natural Right, as he pointed out, quote, it has often been asserted that the Constitution was made exclusively by and for the white race. It has already been shown that in five of the 13 original states, black persons then possessed the elective franchise and were among those by whom the Constitution was ordained and established. If so, it is not true in one point of fact that the Constitution was made exclusively by and for the white race and that it was made exclusively for the right race is not only an assumption not warranted by anything in the Constitution, but contradicted by its opening declaration that it was ordained and established by the people of the United States for themselves and their posterity. And as free colored persons were then citizens of at least five states, and so in every sense part of the people of the United States, they were among those for whom and whose posterity the Constitution was ordained and established. Close quote. The left today can embrace the history of America given to them by Roger B. Taney and the majority of the Dred Scott decision. That's what they do. I never have. I never will. I'll go with Benjamin Curtis's dissent. And I thank Harry Jaffa for starting my journey and understanding all this, as well as for the scholarship. And I thank a system of higher education that once upon a time had the likes of a Dr. Jaffa and allowed students to learn from him. That day is over, so we must think and act anew. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I just 
friend, Jeff Kwiatkowski, works for K-12. He's the vice president over there. I've known him for years back in the 90s. And um, he got a Britney on my recommendation for his family and his daughters. What are you looking at? What What am I doing wrong? What? Okay. Is, is that a better show that they're putting out? Uh, is that a better show? Because because maybe maybe this show right now could 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 draw your attention. Okay. My friend Jeff Kwiatkowski got a Britney because he told me he wanted a dog, and we spent months of me convincing him how great a Britney is, and he's been sending me pictures. Today he sent me a picture of his Britney in a field with goats. OMG. That's my little idea of a picture of what heaven must look like. I tweeted it out. I had to tweet it out. It's a beautiful picture. I On cleanup, um, Bill, you know, Monday, we didn't do anything for this, and I, I feel badly about it. Monday was Vietnam War Veterans Day. And uh, I kept thinking about it, and we I don't think ever did anything about it. So to unify that story about Harry Jaffa and Vietnam, um, this is the kind of professor Harry Jaffa was in what must have been his fifth or sixth book. It was called The Conditions of Freedom, 1975, and he dedicated it to a student. Think about a professor that does that. Let me read you the dedication. Billy Peterson was one of my students at Claremont Men's College. We had formed a friendship of the kind young men and older ones sometimes do form when they are fellow hobbyists or fellow enthusiasts of a sport, bicycling in our case. Many mornings saw the two of us before dawn, wheeling eastward through the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains. When the peace, excuse me, when the pace slackened and when the ride was over, we talked constantly of a wide variety of subjects, most of them political. Yet I cannot recall that military service was a question or a problem in his mind, although no generation in American history was ever so racked or tormented by it as was his. He was neither an objector himself nor belligerent towards those who did object, yet he was a highly intelligent young man as capable as any of examining the opinions of those about him. His patriotism was so natural to him that I think he was hardly aware of it. Billy volunteered for the Naval Air Service. He volunteered for the Helicopter Corps. He volunteered for service in Vietnam. When his tour of duty there was completed, he learned that his replacement would not arrive at the unit for 10 more days and rather than subject the men with whom he had served to extra duty he volunteered once more to serve until his replacement arrived on the second of those 10 days he answered his final call and was killed in action besides numerous lesser decorations billy was awarded the navy air medal with strike flight number numeral 25 and indicating 25 strike flight awards. He also received the Navy Commendation Medal with Combat V. Billy Peterson was a scholar, an athlete, an officer, and a gentleman. He was one of those golden lads of whom A.E. Hausman wrote, who went to war not gaily, but without a doubt that freedom and duty spoke with a single voice. Had he lived, he might have served his country with distinction in any other post of honor or responsibility. And so it is with deep affection. I dedicate his memory to the conditions of freedom. How was Professor Jaffa on a student of his, that student doing what Professor Harry taught him? God bless you. We'll be right back.
little Eddie Money uh, for you here today on uh, this Thursday, April 1st, 2021. I don't really do much with April Fool's. Do you, Bill, and your family? No. I've been caught a couple times today, um, both which made my heart skip a beat. <laughs> Someone telling me I had a flat tire. I didn't. And then about forgetting to feed the dog, which I didn't, speaking of dogs. Um, someone told me there's a new litter of Britneys just a little bit north of here, and I'm thinking show road trip. Yeah? It'd be great. I worry a lot about something that's hard to articulate, and it's this. When Joe Biden in his inaugural spoke about the freedom to protest, he said in that speech, so long as it's in, within the guardrails of democracy. And I knew that we already had a problem with the arbitrary nature of what those guardrails, according to the Democrats, would be. And I worry that when people say it's not about politics or something shouldn't be politicized or it shouldn't be a political question, that they are trying to shut down a conversation about an open debate based on their view that it's a closed question, that they are scientifically right. For example, no debating issues of the BLM curricula. In fact, one of the curricula in Iowa from BLM itself says we should not have to field the need to justify this curriculum. For example, if you cite or interview Donald Trump, that video will be taken down because he is so far beyond the guardrails, evidently, of democracy. Um, if you engage, if your state engages in an act of common sense, Call it conservatism if you want. But anything that runs afoul of the leftist class action lawsuit against the United States in the West, that's our phrase for it, the leftist class action lawsuit against the United States in the West, you will be pushed and cowed and pummeled through threat of boycott and other pressure not to pass the law you want to pass, as Georgia is now finding out with its new Election Reform Act. And companies all over the place are threatening, including, including Major League Baseball, threatening to boycott Georgia. We Arizonans know what this feels like when we did SB 1070. So we're put in this weird position where we feel we have to defend Georgia and People are going to start debating the new election law in Georgia when they know as little about election law as they probably know about Georgia. Election law can be somewhat complicated, and it is amazing to me that everyone immediately so certainly knows what Georgia is doing and that what it's doing is wrong. It's already trapped the president of the United States 
into getting four Pinocchios from the Washington Post for saying something fundamentally untrue about the election law in Georgia having to do with voting time. And this whole issue of not allowing water for people standing in line is a will-o'-the-wisp, too. Anyone can bring their own water, and anyone can leave line to get a drink of water. And who knew in November that voting was such a thirst-driving activity in the first place? But if it is, bring your own damn bottle of water. Or step out of line and get your water. The point of it is not to pressure you in line. You know, like Dennis Prager for Congress emblem on that water. Although I would like to see that emblem somewhere. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. I don't know if I closed the loop on the point I was trying to make in the last segment, but there is this trend to be wary of where the left and the Democrats try and remove from political consideration political consideration that they judge to be correct or right um, or important. And they turn it into that import. They turn into such a scientific truth that to be on the other side of that question makes you obviously, um, well, using Joe Biden's word, a Neanderthal. A Neanderthal. When you don't agree with them on certain policy issues, you will be written out of the guardrails that Joe Biden said is the appropriate lane to steer between in freedom of speech and dissent. But you have to stay within the guardrails. So the Democrats create narrower and narrower guardrails of things we can talk about. So we can't defend Donald Trump. We can't have a different perspective based on different science literature than what leftist and shutdown scientists and epidemiologists and their cadre want us to see and believe. You can't dissent from that. That's anti-science, even though you have scientists on your side, exclusively scientists on your side. Um, you think about Joe Biden saying as much when he says this is, shouldn't be political as he mishandles the mask and waves it around and puts it down and touches his face and puts it back on his face and then covers it with a second one. He says this should be patriotic, not political. Well, they've made it p political. They've made something scientifically unnecessary that instantiates fear and panic a mandate that should be debated. That should be debated. And I think that we have better science on our side than they do theirs, but there is good science for our position. And I think it's better science. In any event, they make it political. They changed the laws in Georgia back to what they were before the power grabs of the last year, the judicial power grabs of the last year, and now the state is engaging in what it is being called as Jim Crow 2.0. Or as Joe Biden says, it makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle because he thinks Jim Crow is a bird, evidently. But this is what they are going to do on an ongoing basis. If you dissent from the conservative position, 
subject yourself to boycott for being so far outside the guardrails of what is supposed to be right thinking. See, this gets to, and I'll get into Georgia in a minute, but this gets to what I keep referring to as the fact-value distinction. This was the phenomenon in political science in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s that said political science should only be about facts and not make value judgments. Only be, may be about facts. You can't make value judgments. They wanted value-free social science, as Jaffa, Dr. Jaffa put it. Thus, modern anthropology may deny the Nazis' assertions as to the inequality of races by denying or criticizing any positive evidence that the Nazi scientists may bring forward in support of their doctrines, but the anthropologists cannot and do not contest the right of the Nazis to be Nazis. They do not say that one ought not to be a Nazi and that the Nazis' treatment of their enemies is morally wrong. To the anthropologists, the principles of National Socialism are one of an unlimited number of possible sets of principles. This is what we all now think of, perhaps, uh, as cultural relativism. You can't denounce another culture for their behaviors because who's to say which culture is better than any other? As Chesterton talked about, he envisioned the African student enrolling from a cannibalist society at Oxford, and his roommate says, I hope you know you can't do that here. That's wrong. And the cannibalist says, why is it wrong? And the student is, says, we just don't do that here. We have to be able to do better than that, don't we? So there's this odd thing where we tried to, the left tried to give us a value-free social science where we couldn't talk about rights and wrongs. And look at what they've done. Look at what they've done in the last 30 years and bringing it to today. The exact opposite of what they told us we shouldn't be doing, making value judgments, and they turn them into factual judgments. They have turned the fact-value distinction on its head. They have made of values facts, or they have made facts of values. Our, our border policy shouldn't be about protecting Americans. You say that, you run afoul of their facts. They think it's a fact that America should be welcoming of anyone who wants to come in here. They think it's a fact. They think it's a fact that in Georgia, the election laws should be made more prone to easy cheat voting, though they don't call it cheating. They think that's a fact. If you circumscribe hours of voting or say that candidates and pressure committees can't bring you up paraphernalia, you're a Neanderthal. If you think, you think businesses should be, along with schools, open and that cities should no longer mandate how you dress because this isn't Iran or Saudi Arabia, you are running afoul of their facts, which are indeed really, truly just values. And so, as I say, we have to learn how to defend Georgia because what people will do is say, well, you Republicans are engaging in Jim Crow 
by defending what's taking place in Georgia. To call what Georgia is doing Jim Crow 2.0 is akin to calling the loving father and grandfather of Orthodox Jews an anti-Semite. It's akin to calling him a fascist. It's akin to saying America is exercising imperialism at the border. These are factually false things, untrue literally. Untrue literally. And yet the Democrats would have you believe they're all scientifically true, beyond peradventure true. And if you dissent, you will be tossed over the guardrail or shunted aside or sent to Coventry or socially and socially media shunned or quieted. And I worry about this. I worry about this because I must have missed the headline where it became illegal to be a conservative in this country. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I do want to talk a little bit about. Um, I do want to li- talk a little bit about what is actually being proposed by the legislation. What is being what, what was signed into law in Georgia? Because we all have to know that now. Uh, that's where the left is now distracting us, and we're now talking more about Georgia uh, and more about infrastructure than the problem at the border. What are we at? Eighteen thousand children now. I reported yesterday um, on um, the children, the video of the children being tossed over the border, some as young as three years old, tossed over the border wall, just tossed as they escape. The people tossing them escape on the other side, on the southern side of the border. Um, do you do you, do you remember when Donald Trump called MS-13 gang members animals? And the left went nuts. Nancy Pelosi actually had to defend MS-13, she thought, saying we are all made in the image of God. It's really the time for that lesson, MS-13. When you understand what these cartels and these gangs do, and you see the throwing of a child three years old over a nine-foot fence, you're just only beginning only beginning to see and understand the enormity an often misused word the enormity of evil that dominates the culture of these cartels and gangs faces get sliced off and sewn on soccer balls to intimidate people I kid you not. I kid you not. And without a pang of conscience, we're supposed to just ignore and move on. Ignore and move on. Charles is right. Charles is right. Dana Perino made a good point 
when she was asked on the five today how she would fix the border crisis because she was so critical of the Biden administration. She said very simply, the Biden administration needs to swallow their pride. Swallow your pride. Overturn what you yourself overturned and forgot about go- and forget about going after Trump and help the American people. That solution will be the toughest of all because there's no desire on the part of the Biden team to ever do that. Sad. Sad. But pride goeth before the fall, and I still await a press briefing of the person in charge of the border since she was nominated to that position, Kamala Harris. You think we'll get that anytime soon? Is it not maddening we haven't had one yet?